This is Nate Carlin and Rob McClure with your local news from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Well, quite a big day today at the Wisconsin State Legislature. Amidst a hectic schedule, the State Assembly approved a package of bills that would increase oversight of people collecting unemployment benefits, reports the Associated Press. One proposal would require the Department of Workforce Development to hire hundreds of people to monitor new work search requirements. The department estimates that the cost of the surveillance system would be over $30 million per year. Other provisions of the package include stricter identity verification checks for benefits and a requirement for potential employers to report recipients who don't show up to interviews. None of the bills addressed the low staffing levels and antiquated technology that caused long delays for applicants during the pandemic. The bills now head to Governor Evers' desk. He is expected to veto the bills after rejecting nearly identical proposals during his first term. Meanwhile, in the Senate, legislatures passed legislation that would prohibit the state or local government from restricting the sale of gas-powered cars, motorcycles, and lawnmowers. No local government has proposed such a measure. Opponents of the bill, all Democrats, described the bill as another attempt at fear-mongering and to build opposition to measures against climate change. The bill passed on a party-line vote in both houses. Governor Evers said that he thought that the nation would transition to non-gas-powered cars and that there would be no need for this prohibition. Meanwhile, legislation requiring the state's parole commission to post the names of individuals applying for or granted parole sailed through the state Senate today on a vote of 29 to 4. The parole transparency legislation would also require the parole commission to post the names of individuals whose parole had been revoked, according to the AP. The bill was approved by the state assembly yesterday with a bipartisan majority and now heads to Governor Evers' desk who hasn't indicated whether he'll approve the legislation. Top Republican Robin Voss, head of the state assembly, says he'll take Milwaukee out of a bill that would increase funding for local governments if Republican lawmakers and Governor Evers don't strike a deal this week. That's according to reporting from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. The power move comes as lawmakers negotiate a bill that would boost funding for local cities, towns, and counties. The shared revenue proposals of the governor, the Senate, and Voss all have provisions that would allow Milwaukee County and City to raise the sales tax to invert an impending fiscal crisis. Voss has demanded, however, that city residents must vote to approve a 2% increase in sales tax, which would be hard to pass. Instead, the proposals offered by the governor and the Senate leader only require the city council to approve the tax increase. Despite offering little new state assistance to Milwaukee or any large city, Voss denounced Milwaukee as, quote, holding the state hostage. Because of the fiscal impact of the shared revenue bill, it would have to be included with the budget by the end of the month. Milwaukee is just one of many municipalities in Wisconsin that could be standing before a fiscal cliff if funding for local governments is not bumped up. That's a lot of legislative action. We'll have even more news about what happened at the state capitol today later in the broadcast. Well, in campus news, the UW-Madison student who sparked protests after a video of her uttering racist remarks circulated online has now apologized. In an exclusive to the Daily Cardinal, one of of UW-Madison's student newspapers, the student issued an apology saying her words were, quote, disgusting and unacceptable. Meanwhile, other students on campus have called for the university to expel her, even as free speech experts warn that the campus doesn't have the legal capability to do so. 
The student group that led the protest, the Black Power Coalition, said they were disappointed the student give, didn't give her apology directly to them. They said in part, quote, We are tired of people reflecting and learning from the trauma they inflict upon us. A report from the city's Farmland Preservation Task Force has about 50 recommendations to improve city policies and practices concerning the remaining farmland and city limits. Key among the recommendations are measures to empower small-scale farmers and policies to protect the remaining farmland. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that the city owns about 200 acres of farmland, some of which are leased. The report suggests that the city intentionally develop what it calls agri-communities, such as Troy Gardens, that blend higher density, low income, and market rate housing with available farmland. A development-oriented group, Smart Growth with Madison, said that one of the report's recommendations regarding land annexed by the city would invite wasteful controversy and push farmland development further into the county. And a prominent community leader, particularly well-known in Madison's Latino community, has passed away at the age of 64. Madison 365 confirms that Juan Jose Lopez has passed away. He was the first Latino to serve on the Madison School Board and also served on the boards of Nuestro Mundo School and One City Schools, among other boards. He also worked with youth by serving as the head of Briarpatch Youth Services and the Boys and Girls Club of Dane County before turning to employment with the state. In a statement today, Dane County Executive Joe Parisi characterized his passing as, quote, a shock and a loss, calling Jose Lopez a leader in both the Latino community and the greater Dane County community. And take note, the 36th annual Madison Jazz Festival begins tomorrow night and will continue for the 11 days and nights in clubs and churches, indoors and outdoors. As always, the festival will attempt to span the range of jazz, but it all starts tomorrow with an event at Cafe Coda and then moves on to the Arts and Literature Laboratory. Some events will be free, others will be ticketed, such as saxophonist Lakeisha Benjamin at Memorial Union. And those are the headlines for this evening. Now on to the rest of the day's top stories. Amidst today's legislative flurry, Assembly Republicans passed a package of bills they say will make the state's key credentialing agency more efficient. WORT reporter Abigail Levins watched today's proceedings in real time. The Wisconsin Assembly passed seven bills dealing with the Wisconsin Department of Safety and Professional Services, or DISPIS. That's the state agency that provides licensing credentials in order for certain professionals to work in the state. Everyone from social workers, counselors, accountants, architects, chiropractors, dentists, elevator inspectors, and funeral directors need to go through DISPIS before they can do their jobs. And for years, DISPIS has faced criticism from the legislature for administrative backlog and staffing issues. Republicans say the bills passed today would streamline the agency's professional licensing process and empower the agency. Democrats, though, say what DISPIS really needs is more resources, primarily staff. Governor Evers asked for more staff for DISPIS in his budget proposal. Republican lawmakers have not yet addressed this, pointing instead to today's package of bills. Some of the bills passed today outline reporting measures for the agency. One, AB 200, requires DISPIS to inform the legislature on the number of applicants for licenses, how long applications take to be processed, how many contacts DISPIS has with applicants before they receive a license, and how many applied where they had to consider past criminal convictions. Republican Representative Shay Sortwell said they cannot improve DISPIS without their data. 
Now, the department owes the public the information. Is that this is about providing data, giving information to this legislative body, giving information to the public at large to know what is going on at DISPIS. Assembly Bill 201 was similar, also asking DISPIS to provide information about the applications they receive. Another bill would loosen the rules for candidates seeking credentials. Currently, DISPIS can investigate a candidate's criminal history as part of their application for an occupational credential if the past crime could be related to the circumstances of employment. But under AB 202, DISPIS could move ahead with credentialing without reviewing certain types of crimes, including crimes that are a candidate's first conviction or crimes that involve underage alcohol use or minor nonviolent ordinance violations. According to Representative Sortwell, DISPIS says that reviewing criminal records creates the most backlog in reviewing licensed applicants. Sortwell said this would streamline the process because DISPIS currently has to wait for extra documentation instead of just performing their own background checks. Another bill, AB 203, would essentially allow workers to continue to work while waiting for a renewed license from DISPIS. Sortwell argued that this bill is common sense. If anyone who votes no, Mr. Speaker, is taking the position that they don't care if somebody loses their job because DISPIS hasn't issued the license yet. Meanwhile, another bill would extend the length of renewals for health and business licenses from the current two-year period to four years. Republican Representative Clint Moses said the bill could support health care workers. If we really want to get to work and help this agency out, DISPIS, this is the bill to do it. Um, this lightens the burden because it basically takes what is currently a two-year renewal period for health and business uh, professionals in our state and makes it a four-year. AB 205 would ask DISPIS to give temporary credentials to people in good standing from other states while they are waiting for permanent credentials. Democratic Representative Supreme Moore Omokonde of Milwaukee emphasized that DISPIS has no staff and no resources to do everything the legislator is asking them to do. And that is why lawmakers have brought up so many of these bills. Supporting the resources that the Department of, of Safety and Professional Services need would be good for all of us. The people who are our doctors, the people who are our nurses, the people who are architects and do this great work, we need to make sure that they have the support that they need. The final bill would order the agency to create specific standards for issuing so-called reciprocal credentials for healthcare workers. That's when a candidate who has a certification in another jurisdiction seeks a similar credential in Wisconsin without needing to provide all of the documentation an applicant would typically need. Under the bill, the agency would also need to post more information about these credentials on their website. Today's hearings didn't pass without incident or political bickering. Speaking on the floor today, Democratic Representative Katrina Shankland called out Representative Sortwell for playing what she says are political games, accusing the lawmaker of threatening to cut funding to the agency. All of today's bills passed and head over for consideration to the Senate. They need to be signed by the governor before becoming law. Today's fight comes as the Legislators' Budget Writing Committee is scheduled to hear from the Department of Safety and Public Services tomorrow for a budget hearing. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Abigail Levins. Madison educators will be getting the maximum raise allowed by state law. Our reporter Bennett Davishoff has more on yesterday's announcement from the Madison Metropolitan School District. Madison staff and teachers are getting a raise. That's after Savian Castro, a member of the Madison School Board, announced in a press release yesterday 
an 8% base wage increase in the district's next budget. That 8% increase is more than double what MMSD had initially proposed earlier this year. In April, current and former educators packed a school board meeting to lobby against the district's initial proffer of 3.5% increase. At the time, teachers said that knocking at least 8% would amount to a pay cut due to inflation. Michael Jones is the president of Madison Teachers, Inc., or MTI, the local teachers' union. Jones tells WORT today that he was pleasantly surprised at yesterday's announcement. Well, you know, when we met, I was optimistic that we were going to see a cost of living adjustment increase. I was really surprised that we got to the max just because there were very few indications that the district was going to go that way. You know, it was just a pleasant surprise. The move does come with fiscal implications. The Capital Times reports that MMSD is facing a $30 million budget shortfall in fiscal year 2025. Future increases in educator pay could be threatened if the district doesn't receive more help from state government. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Bennett Davishoff. Two local Madison chefs have won the James Beard Award for Best Chefs in the Midwest. It's the third time a Madison restaurant has won the prestigious award. The chefs learned of their award on Monday during a ceremony broadcast from the Lyric Opera of Chicago. Reporter Nate Carlin has more. And the winner is Itaro Nagawa and Andrew Craig. And with that, the James Beard Award for Best Chef in the Midwest went to the Chefs of Fairchild, a restaurant on Monroe Street that focuses on classical, sustainably made dishes. The James Beard Award is considered the Oscars of the food world and is one of the highest honors a chef can receive. The Midwest Award covers the states of Iowa, Kansas, Minnesota, Nebraska, the Dakotas, and Wisconsin, and honors a chef in that region who displays both excellence in culinary output and leadership in the industry. Andrew Kroger and Ataru Nagano are the third and fourth winners of the award from the Madison area. Two separate chefs from La Tuile on the Capitol Square have won previously. Both Kroger and Nagano have worked at La Tuile under the two previous Madison winners. Fairchild opened just two weeks before the COVID lockdown began. The two chefs partnered with Patrick Sierra, also formerly of La Tuile, to open the restaurant. Fairchild focuses on sustainable seasonal ingredients, and both recipients called out Wisconsin farmers in their acceptance speeches. I'd like to thank my beautiful wife for understanding the hard work and the dedication it takes. Um, the, our business partners, our small team, um, our farmers, and the city of Madison. <laughs> I'd also like to thank my partner Marley for making it all happen, our daughter Evangeline, uh, my best friend who I get to cook with every day, Ataru, all the farmers of Madison, our regulars, and the James Beard Foundation. The James Beard Foundation is a nonprofit that works to celebrate American food culture and the chefs behind the scene who work to provide food to restaurant goers. The organization is named after the cookbook author, who helped establish American cuisine as a unique cultural space. The committee who determines the awards is made up of food industry professionals, although anyone can nominate a chef for consideration. Osteria Papavero in Madison was a semi-finalist for the award. Madison Sourdough was a semi-finalist in the category of Outstanding Pastry Chefs. Ahan, a Lao-inspired restaurant on Madison's east side, was a semi-finalist in the category of Emerging Chefs. Reporting for WORT, this is Nate Carlin.
time is now 622, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. It's been a season of flag raisings already during the month of June. Last week, Governor Eveners hosted the Pride flag over the Wisconsin State Capitol, where it'll fly for the rest of the month. Yesterday, local leaders raised the Juneteenth flag downtown. And today, Madison made history by raising the trans flag over the Madison Municipal Building. WORT reporter Abigail Levins attended the event where Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway, the, city, the city's first openly lesbian mayor, and Alder Dina Nina Martinez-Rutherford, the city's first transgender alder, spoke to the public. in Wisconsin and one of the earliest in the country to ban discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation by amending our Equal Opportunity Ordinance. So Madison has been leading uh, for decades and blazing a trail ever since then. We created the state's first domestic partnership registry in 1990 by ordinance affording rights to same-sex couples. We became the first place in Wisconsin to discrimination on the basis of gender identity, again amending our Equal Opportunities Ordinance. And we became one of the first to raise the rainbow pride flag over Madison in 2019 and lit the Madison Municipal Building in rainbow colors. We have had many, many groundbreaking individuals serve in city and county government, including Senator Baldwin and Congressman Mark Pocan. But today, we are here not only to celebrate Pride Month, but to celebrate a group of Madison Council members that is the most diverse yet, with a quarter of Alder districts in the city of Madison being represented by folks in the LGBTQ plus community. Today, in honor of Alder Martinez Rutherford, Madison will make history again by raising the trans flag, and it will fly for a week outside of the municipal building. But before we do that, I'd like to bring up Alder Martinez-Rutherford to say a few words. So my name is Alder Dina Nina Martinez-Rutherford. I use she, her pronouns. And as the first transgender woman elected to the Madison Common Council, I am honored to be taking part in this groundbreaking moment. Raising the transgender pride flag signifies a profound commitment to inclusivity, acceptance, and the protection of the rights and dignity of our transgender and non-binary uh, neighbors, children, friends, and family. As I've said, and I will continue to say, representation not only matters, it literally saves lives. And today we raise the trans flag, recognizing the contributions that those of us who are part of the gender expansive community make to the city of Madison. Today we're not only affirming that we are seen, but it draws a strong line that we will not ignore the hateful rhetoric and violence towards us, that we will uh, listen to and advocate for those who are being targeted, and it says that we will care and value your freedom to be who you are and how you move through the world. It asserts that we will not lay down when adversity raises its head, and most importantly, that our right to receive life-saving uh, life care will not be thwarted without a fight. When I transitioned in 2007, it was hard for me to fathom seeing a world with gender expansive individuals represented po positively in the mainstream media. 
I never expected to run for office, and I, after all the pageants that I've lost, I did not expect to win. <laughs> <laughs> and being at the table is weird and scary. Strides we made and continue to make bring me hope for a future that is less biased and less hostile towards us. Finally, we have always been here and we will always be here. No talk of eradication will keep us from existing and when French groups uh, attack us, we will dispel the lies and we will take up space and continue to exist to love and to thrive. Uh, Madisonian uh, individuals like Mercury Stardust and Cass Marie Domino who approach the world with such talent and kindness and love inspire me daily. And I do this for them as well as those who have gone for, before us. And thank you, uh, city and state officials and their offices who are represented here today. It makes me so happy to know that we are finally being seen and heard and recognized. And thanks for uh, making my job a little bit easier and taking a stand for those of us who've been historically ignored. Uh, we see you and thank you for seeing us. So thank you all again uh, for joining us for this flag raising. Uh, I just want to add that, you know, my community and particularly the trans community is under attack all across our nation. Um, in ways that are really hurtful and harmful. And I want everybody to know that the city of Madison is a place where everyone, but particularly trans folks and particularly trans kids, are welcomed and supported and affirmed. We are here for you. And we are gonna fight to protect the trans community and the LGBTQ plus community here in Madison and in the state of Wisconsin and across this country. And we're gonna do whatever we have to do. Thank you all for joining us and happy Pride. That was audio from today's flag raising over the Madison Municipal Building, where local leaders hoisted the trans flag. It will fly over the Madison Municipal Building for the next week. And you're listening to Handcrafted Local News on WORT. Stay with us for the second half of the show. A lot more coming at you. What's with all the recent air quality advisories? You asked, we'll answer. The Empire Strikes Back on Madison in the 60s, and I'll talk at even greater length about air quality and what will be coming up this coming weekend for the weather with all the complete details, so stay tuned. You're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Nate Carlin, here with my co-host, Rob McClure. Thanks for joining us. What's with all the recent air quality reports? You asked, and we did the research. For more on what goes into air monitoring and how we've been battered by poor air and what might be coming over the next few days, my co-host Nate Carlin sat down with Craig Zarnecki, the Outreach Coordinator for the Department of Natural Resources Air Management Program, earlier today. My name is Craig Zarnecki, and I am the Outreach Coordinator for the DNR Air Management Program. 
Wonderful. And so what is the DNR Air Management Program? Wow. So, yeah, we do all kinds of stuff. So there's uh, several different areas of the DNR Air Program. One section uh, specifically runs our air monitoring network, and our network is spread across the state. I think we have around 30 sites or so. And these are placed as required by the Clean Air Act, and they measure the national ambient air quality standards or like federal levels for these different criteria pollutants. Um, That would be like particulate matter, which is what we've seen with the wildfire smoke recently, nitrogen dioxide, ozone, carbon monoxide, sulfur dioxide, and lead. So those are the main uh, pollutants that our monitoring network is measuring. Great. And so uh, when you say air monitoring, and you mentioned a little bit about the how many different stations there are and like the density of that. But can you, can, what exactly is air monitoring? Like what, what does an air monitor look like? So usually there's like a little trailer and then there's some equipment kind of on top of the trailer that looks like an air filter where air can get into the monitor. So these things take samples. And then there's a bunch of uh, computer equipment inside these little trailers that are actually able to measure those air samples and determine you know, what kind of pollutants and how concentrated they are. And then that data is sent to our cloud, and then we're able to access that data pretty close to in real time there. So we have a group of folks who are responsible for maintaining and running those different monitoring stations. And how, how often do those monitors ping, and, or the, how often do they notice there's something bad in the air? Hard to say. It really depends on a number of factors, weather being, being one of them. So recently, I know we've had a number of of air quality advisories kind of since mid-May. It's definitely been a very interesting spring in the air management program with all these different advisories we've had. And in mid-May, it kind of started with the wildfire smoke from out west. So we had some elevated uh, PM 2.5 or fine particulate uh, levels. So we had uh, an advisory for that. And then we had kind of some hot stagnant air, which led to a number of ozone advisories. Yeah, just those weather systems, you know, with ozone especially, without a lot of mixing in the atmosphere, the pollutants can kind of just build up. And uh, with ozone, the volatile organic compounds and nitrogen dioxide, they need sunlight to chemically react to form ozone. So that's what we see on those hot days. And then we had another weather shift uh, just kind of over the weekend. And now, you know, the last few days, uh, we've been seeing some wildfire smoke impacts from uh, Quebec out there in eastern Canada this time. So it's been a very eventful spring. This is somewhat out of the ordinary, for sure, especially with the wildfire smoke impacts here in the spring. But yeah, a lot of it is kind of is, is weather weather dependent on kind of how, how we're impacted, especially with the, with the wildfire smoke. Yeah, how, how often do you see wildfire smoke uh, create an advisory? Is that something that happens every year? Um, It's been happening a little more often the last few years, Um, and typically this is something that we would see like later in the summer when it's really hot and dry, but we're seeing it a little bit earlier this year here in the the spring months instead now, so that's something that's a little different than what we're used to. But yeah, I mean, since since 2012, DNR hasn't issued any advisories for PM2.5 or fine particle pollution in the spring, and we've had four of those advisories here this spring alone. Wow. Um, and that's just, that's directly as a result of the, the wildfires up in Canada. So yeah, so we've just been a kind of a, a really unlucky set of circumstances with wildfires and then our weather patterns over the past, you know, three, four weeks here. We've been getting hit with, uh, yeah, smoke from kind of east and west and then ozone in the middle uh, between both of those wildfire uh, events. So when the, the DNR issues a air advisory, uh, what what is... 
the advice? <laughs> what, what should people do? What, what's the takeaway from that? <laughs> yeah, so usually when we're issuing an advisory, it's for when the air quality index or AQI reaches the unhealthy for sensitive groups level. And when we say sensitive groups, we mean people with heart or lung disease, older adults uh, and children, and then also those who might work a lot outside. So when we have a unhealthy for sensitive groups air quality advisory, we would ask those people to consider to make their outdoor activities a little bit shorter and less intense, try reducing heavy exertion, and then watching for symptoms like coughing or shortness of breath. Those would be signs that you would need to maybe take a break or take it a little bit easier. So we mentioned a little bit about the ozone and the smoke particulates. Are there other air advisories that have happened in the recent year or so for the other types of air monitoring? <laughs> no. Uh, ozone and PM2.5 are uh, the most common, and those are the only two that we've had advisories for, I think, for quite some time. I'm trying to even think. I've been with DNR for five years, and I don't remember having an advisory for any of the other pollutants. So, yeah, it's, it's typically for ozone in the summer, again, because those pollutants need heat and sunlight to form ozone, so that's when we see those elevated um, ozone levels. And then particulate matter can come from a number of different sources. Obviously, the source that we're seeing now is from wildfire smoke, uh, but it can also come from uh, combustion, um, cars and trucks. Any kind of combustion-related activities produces uh, fine particulate matter as well. Well, yeah, I mean, just anecdotally speaking, in Madison, where we're based, I've had a lot of people talk to me about having trouble breathing on their their walks to and from work or just like feeling short of breath and not necessarily people in like the vulnerable populations. Mm -hmm. It seems like people are people can feel it. They're they're sensing something. Yeah. Yeah. The last uh, few days, especially like over the weekend. Yeah, there there were some some impacts from that wildfire smoke uh, in in Madison here. Um, Yeah, we're just on the southwest side, too. And it was in the orange, but it was elevated in the orange. if you will. So, yeah, we're just hoping for uh, some better weather and hopefully those fires can get put out because as long as those fires keep burning and, you know, if that wind changes direction, we could see impacts again. Um, it looks like there's a chance here again over the next few days that that could be the case again. So we're, we're keeping an eye on that here as well. So do you see higher levels of ozone in cities where there are more cars? The more, yeah, the more population, the denser the population um, and the more vehicles on the roads, yeah, that's Ozone transport is one of the big issues um, and challenges for the Wisconsin DNR. We do have some non-attainment. We're not meeting the ozone standards uh, along Lake Michigan. Um, there's like a, I think it's a six or seven county area there. And um, a lot of that ozone pollution uh, blows up over Lake Michigan kind of from the south. And then it reacts during the day with the sun. And then um, the lake breezes, you know, later in the day blow that ozone pollution onto shore. And then we can see those elevated ozone levels um, kind of up and down the Lake Michigan shoreline there. It's uh, one of the main, one of the main challenges for us. There's, it's, it's a lot of, a lot of transport, transported emissions from, from out of state we have to deal with. So there are pretty significant regional differences in air quality then? It sounds like maybe the east and south are a little poorer and then the north is, is not. Is, is that true? Uh, no, in Wisconsin, um, yeah, so the non-attainment areas in Wisconsin, yeah, would be along the Lake Michigan shoreline, and then that would include Milwaukee County, and then it goes inland, partial Waukesha, partial Washington County as well. Um, but then, yeah, then um, otherwise the rest of the state is meeting all other 
federal uh, air standards. So the only one we're not meeting is ozone, and that's just for those uh, handful of counties there along the shoreline. Is there something about your job that I missed or something interesting about the, the current particulate issue that uh, you want to talk about? Yeah, it's definitely been uh, a very interesting spring, certainly with these kind of events back to back to back here. And I guess I would just say if people want to stay uh, aware and up to date on their air quality information, we have a number of different ways to do that at DNR. You can sign up to receive email or text messages when an air quality advisory issued. Uh, We also have our air quality monitoring data map online. You can see all the different air monitoring sites and what they're currently measuring, what air quality is uh, in those areas. So it's another handy place to look for your air quality information as well. Is is this something you think is going to continue going forward for the next couple days? Will it continue to be lower air quality? I did get the forecast from our meteorologist this morning, and I just had it open right before you called because I thought we might be talking about (laughs) that. Um, It looks like we're looking at a potential for... He's not, I guess he's not, he's saying he's not ruling out the possibility of some USG are unhealthy for sensitive groups, again, for PM 2.5 potential over the next couple of days here. Uh, but he says mostly it should be a mix of good to moderate. Uh, AQI seems most probable. It just kind of depends on what the weather wants to do the next uh, couple of days. So something we are, yeah, definitely keeping, keeping an eye on. And there is a chance, it looks like, uh, for uh, some USG um advisories uh, again potential we're the smoke is supposed to stay up high in the atmosphere so you're definitely going to see like hazy sunrises and sunsets where we can't rule out the chance for another advisory here over the next few days it looks like all right well thanks so much for talking to me today craig it's now time for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with wrt weather guru rob mcclure Well, we're going to have a whole 20 minutes of atmospheric news here this evening. Well, we managed to pick up a few more hundredths of an inch of rain yesterday, out at the airport anyway, uh, seven hundredths of an inch out there to be precise. But once again, with a very dry lower atmosphere like we've been seeing for a couple of weeks now, rain totals underneath the passing echoes that were visible on the radar yesterday were quite sparse and generally below about two-tenths of an inch in the few locations that actually received rain. Just a couple of reports up towards half an inch up in Columbia County. Those showers were being lifted into existence ahead of a weak cold front, which finally pushed south and southwestward through southern Wisconsin uh, late in the afternoon, backing our easterly winds more northerly and delivering us an even drier air mass now than the one that had been in place before. So beyond just a few passing ice crystal clouds today and some smoke, of course, in the upper part of the atmosphere, uh, not so much as a single cumulus could be uh, found lower down. The smoke, by the way, may be the only uh, operative factor in what will otherwise be a fairly nil weather situation the next couple of days, given the retreat of significant moisture down to our west and south again. So in any case, uh, I added the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration smoke uh, smoke mapping website to the featured graphics up on the WORT weather webpage. So that's one more handy spot you have to go look at, uh, see what the smoke forecast is. And that may come in handy over the next few days as we just heard, since the wildfires in Quebec continue to burn out of control. And it's possible, uh, given the mid and upper level wind trajectories, that more of that smoke could indeed work westward and southwestward over us. 
Uh, indeed, if you have a look at the water vapor image of the continental U.S., that's right up above the smoke map on the WORT weather webpage. You'll see there what is uh, by now a familiar upper air pattern with the big uh, rightward turning upper ridge that began delivering hot, dry air up to Canada a couple of weeks ago, and of course uh, exacerbating the fire risk up there. That ridge is now a little further back to the west, over, out over the Canadian plains, while the large uh, leftward turning upper low downstream of it has backed uh, westward kind of in unison behind it and is now centered about over New Brunswick, but that upper low extends westward past the Ontario-Quebec border. So it's hopefully in a position to bring some shower activity up over the area where the worst of those fires are located, which is a few hundred miles to the northwest of Montreal. In any case, as the upper low circulation elongates a little bit further westward and southwestward over the coming day, you can uh, see that this uh, little bit, uh, you can see that actually that happening a little bit towards the end of the uh, image loop if you're looking at it. That trajectory could indeed uh, have a, put a little more smoke down uh, southwestward towards us tomorrow in addition to the uh, eastern U.S., which is uh, currently catching the brunt of that smoke. Uh, so that may cut, it, cut the sun. The smoke may cut the sun a little bit and possibly hold temperatures down another degree or two tomorrow, what we would otherwise see. But otherwise, we should be uh, sunny and dry as the surface high pressure passes southward over us uh, through Friday night and into Saturday, slowly veering our northeasterly winds tomorrow more southerly and southwesterly. And that should bring slightly better moisture back into the area, finally, than we've been seeing for a while. So when the next Canadian air mass lines up to our north to come pressing southward over us later Saturday, I think we'll be in a position to get a better shot at some widespread showers and thunderstorms. Model timing has been slowing down that uh, frontal passage, so I'm expecting most of Saturday to be dry at this point. And all of the longer-range models have a fairly progressive frontal passage, so I'm uh, expecting a fair number of dry hours actually on Sunday as well, especially later in the day. Following that, the models agree on uh, cutting off an upper low like the one that's up over Quebec currently. Uh, it's somewhere over the Great Lakes region, so return to showeriness is not impossible either later Sunday or on the day Monday. Though I think much of the precipitation may end up setting up to our east, or at least that's the trend in the models recently. But back to the shorter term, the clear skies this evening should uh, maybe just see a few passing cirrus, but otherwise just that light pall of smoke that you see up there uh, currently, that'll hang up above us overnight with northeasterly winds at 48 miles per hour overnight, holding temperatures from falling past the uh, mid-40s most places, probably just the upper 40s most places, uh, though dew points are down in the upper 30s currently. Tomorrow, uh, sunny skies may be dimmed by uh, passing smoke at times, and that's probably uh, likelier further to the east of Madison than it is to the west, given the uh, prominence of the smoke generally further east on the continent. Temperatures should reach the mid-70s on northeasterly winds at 4 to 7 miles per hour. Winds will come down and veer east and southeast overnight with a low temperature around 50. Friday should continue mostly uh, sunny with uh, some uptick in passing high clouds perhaps as we get later in the day. Temperatures will hit 80 or so on light west to southwest winds at 4 to 7 miles per hour. Additional high clouds overnight and light southwesterly winds should hold temperatures to the upper 50s going into Saturday. And Saturday should see increasing high and mid-level clouds blowing off of uh, what will be upstream showers and thunderstorms approaching from the northwest later in the day. But I think precipitation will hold off probably until evening or perhaps even the overnight. 
Temperatures will reach the low 80s on Saturday with dew points starting to feel a little bit damp, coming up into the mid or upper 50s. Passing showers or thunderstorms are uh, reasonably likely during the overnight into Sunday, though modeling does uh, show cells being somewhat scattered out ahead of that frontal boundary. Uh, which will eventually veer our winds northwest and north in the overnight into Sunday. And will be cooler and possibly uh, still a little bit wet going into Sunday, with temperatures holding that day probably just in the 60s, given cloud cover and uh, possible showeriness through the day, and northeasterly winds, which will be up to 10 to 15 miles per hour. And will stay cool into Monday and possibly Tuesday as well next week. Uh, just at the moment, down here at the station on Bedford Street, the temperature is 73. The dew point temperature is 37. Uh, clear skies overhead, uh, just fairly minor smoke aloft, and uh, winds are out of the northeast at 13 miles per hour. The barometer is uh, fairly steady over the past few hours at 29.88 inches of mercury. It's now 6.51 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to the second week of June 1969, when the city council and Madison firefighters dealt with racism in different ways. The empire struck back against youthful rebels, and a national magazine fawned over downtrodden alder Paul Soglin. Here's Stu Levitan with this week's edition of Madison in the 60s. Madison in the 60s, the second week of June, 1969. The three private clubs in Madison that have racial restrictions in their national charter, the Elks, Eagles, and Loyal Order of the Moose, have known since 1966 that they could lose their city liquor licenses if their whites-only clause remained in force, because it was three years ago that the city council voted to stop renewing licenses, quote, at some future date for any club that retained racist provisions. That date may have arrived this week for the Moose, after one of the club's leaders endorses the racial restrictions and says they are even enforced against invited guests. No renewal problems for the Elks and Eagles, which showed they were working to change their charters. But with Eugene Parks, elected Madison's first black alderman just two months ago, sitting directly in front of him, Moose attorney and past club officer Willis Donnelly gives a passionate but counterproductive defense of the club's whites-only membership clause. And he ends by inviting to the club, quote, those of you who are qualified to go, namely white men not married to a non-white woman. The comment causes an Eastside alderman who supported the Elks and Eagles license to vote against the Moose, leaving it one vote short of approval. But due to an error in the official notice, the council will vote again in two weeks, along with a request from the Equal Opportunities Commission to finally set a date for enforcement. The Madison Firefighters Union has a different attitude than the Moose. It wants members as minorities. Firefighters Local 311 passes a resolution strongly endorsing equal opportunity and asking non-whites to apply. The resolution is drafted by Union President Captain Ed Durkin. Hard times coming for campus radicals and hippies as the Republicans who control the State Assembly and the UW Board of Regents team up to crack down on campus disorders and drugs. 
The regents adopt new rules limiting the memorial union to members and their guests and setting penalties for unauthorized entrance onto a UW campus. Persons convicted of a crime during a campus disorder will be barred from campus for two years unless they have the chancellor's permission. Violating a regent policy during a disorder gets a one-year ban. The rule provides for a fine of up to $500 or six months in jail, or both, for such unauthorized entrance. The regents also consolidate conservative control by naming Madison native Dr. James T. Nellen, the team physician to the Green Bay Packers, as their new president. A former Badger footballer, Nellen was appointed in 1965 by Republican Governor Warren Knowles to a vacancy created because the Republican Senate refused to confirm a nomination from Democratic Governor John Reynolds. In the past, Nellen has called for firing faculty involved in disruptive protests. Some of those protests, legislative staff attorney James R. Clouser asserts in a 45-page report, happen because campus cops go too easy on the protesters, and drug users too. The Assembly responds by giving initial approval to a bill abolishing the UW Office of Protection and Security and putting the Madison Police Department in charge on campus. The leading campus politician gets some very positive national press as Look Magazine profiles downtown Alderman Paul Soglin in a piece entitled The Boy Alderman of Madison. The five-page feature calls the 24-year-old, quote, one of the more effective members of the city council, despite his casual dress and cutting attacks on the status quo. He's, quote, willing to work within the system, the article says, despite the disapproval of ultra-leftists. Among the illustrations of the 8th Ward Alderman is one of him at work, driving a taxi cab. Quote, I can't take a job that would co-opt me and make me a part of the system, he says in explaining his unusual aldermanic occupation. The Chicago native represents the so-called Mifland area. From the courthouse, quirky attorney Edward Ben Elson is convicted of driving a motorcycle without a helmet, thus violating a state law he says violates his constitutional right to gamble with death if he so chooses. A former candidate for mayor and owner of the No Hassle clothing shop, Elson says we're approaching the world of intrusive government George Orwell envisioned in 1984 and warns that someday cigarettes might be banned and it could become a crime to not buckle your seatbelt. Members of the UW chapter of the conservative Young Americans for Freedom announced they'll challenge the increasingly radical Daily Cardinal with a free weekly newspaper called the Badger Herald. Editor-designate Pat Corton calls the Cardinal, quote, the only underground newspaper in the United States published with university sanction, and says the campus needs a newspaper that, quote, prints unbiased news, not just radical views. The 21-year-old Thienesville senior, also an officer in the campus YAF, denies his political views would color the paper's news coverage. Editors at the Cardinal, long under fire from regents and Republican legislators for editorial bias in printing obscenities, say they're not worried about the competition. But competition to come worries downtown merchants as construction starts on the West Town Shopping Center at Mineral Point and Gammon Roads. The 100-acre, $10 million center with 4,000 free parking spaces is scheduled to open in late 1970. Developer Jacobs Visconti Jacobs of Cleveland plans to open the East Town Shopping Center in the fall of 71. 
Mayor Bill Dyke directs the city plan department to look into creating what he calls a historic site zoning category as a way to save the 116-year-old Mapleside House on University Avenue. The 1853 Greek Revival farmhouse of Buff Sandstone, built by Abel and Muriel Dunning, the first white settlers to plant crops in Dane County, is scheduled to be torn down in July for a gas station and restaurant. And it's the end of an era for Madison show business, as the great stage at the Orpheum Theater shuts down after 42 years, so Madison 20th Century Theaters can convert some of its space to a new theater, to be called The Stage Door. Some of America's greatest touring acts, from vaudevillians to rock and rollers, appeared on the Orpheum stage since it opened March 31, 1927. Among the modern musicians to appear just this decade, Louis Armstrong, Ray Charles, the Mills Brothers, Bo Diddley, Chubby Checker, the Coasters, the Isley Brothers, Pete Seeger, the Weavers, the Everly Brothers, Johnny Cash, the Clancy Brothers, Merle Haggard, Buck Owens, Marty Robbins, Johnny Mathis, Al Hurt, Johnny Rivers, Frankie Avalon, Sonny and Cher, Herman's Hermits, the Beach Boys, the Birds, and Bob Dylan. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported WORT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to the live local news, and thanks to our headline writer, David Ahrens, our reporters, Abigail Levins and David Davishoff. Special thanks to feature contributor Stu Levitan. Lauren Hicks engineered tonight's show. Nate Carlin produced it. And Shelly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Nate Carlin. Stay up to date with the WRT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM, Madison.